Let me just start off with a quote here. On this occasion, the board wishes to express that it finds the value of these tests highly doubtful. They give no reliable impression of the proficiency level reached in the public school system. In some cases, they even generate a distorted picture of the school standard. And add to this that they are used to assess the matters of both the school system and particular schools. Of course, that's never been the intention, but it's impossible to avoid. The board must therefore recommend that the ministerial tests be terminated. And that's a letter from the Danish Teachers Union to the Ministry of Education dated 1947. And I think the quote really says something about the, the dilemmas and the tensions between the stakeholders of educational accountability, the ministry, the authorities, and the teachers on the other uh, hand, and also the, um, all the unintended consequences that seems to attach to any evaluation system that it generates some unintended consequences. Um, these ministerial tests, just as kind of a background knowledge, they were in effect between 1915 and 1954. And, uh, and they were used on randomly selected schools to determine the proficiency level of school leavers. Um, and that's just a number of, of children tested. But um, I'll get back to that. That was just kind of an opening um, case. What I'll be talking to you about is first I'll, I'll uh, say something about the, the outset and the research questions that I tried to deal with and the uh, contemporary educational accountability regime. I'm sure you're familiar with that, but uh, just to give you kind of an uh, idea of how it's, it looks like from a Danish perspective, which is not that different from a, an, an English or uh, even British perspective. Then I'll introduce, introduce the 360 degree stakeholders and then take a historical tour of these stakeholders. Uh, as you can see, the crown maybe even, so that of course uh, I go quite far back. And of course in those days it wasn't test-based accountability, but still there, are, there were some accountability issues that have played into the uh, testing era as well. And then at the end I, I hope to say something about the lessons learned and the pros and the cons, and the, uh, maybe even a conclusion. And uh, finally, there's some literature on which this presentation is based. But if you're interested, I can send you the presentation on email so you can see that. Um, my starting point really is very much inspired by Stephen Hopman saying that accountability measures and practices change the ways and means by which societies approach their educational systems. And in a larger scope, maybe even the culture of a society is affected by accountability measures because accountability tends to permeate almost every area of life. Um, I have found it quite difficult to approach the phenomenon of accountability. Uh, maybe I should mention that in, in the Danish language, there's no equivalent to the word of accountability. So that really raises some issues. But um, I have found a very good um, operationalization of accountability, I think, in the work of Burke. And that's also listed in the literature list at the end. And uh, he raises the question, who is accountable to whom, for what purposes, for whose benefit, by which means, and with which consequences? I found that to be a very useful uh, set of questions because it enables me to move beyond the contemporary uh, setting and move into the historical 
um, sources because you maybe you won't find accountability as a term in there. But still, there were some accountability issues at play. As far as I know, the first time accountability was used in a piece of legislation was in 1971 in Florida, where they had an accountability act uh, at that time. So it is, to some extent, a quite recent term. The research questions are really how can we clarify the characteristics and traits connected with the concept of accountability? What are the potentials, appeals and implications for the continued used, uh, use of test-based accountability measures in contemporary educational settings? So it's really very much about um, finding out what history can teach us to not let the uh, experiences of history be forgotten. So that's what I, what I hope to do. The contemporary accountability regime is characterized by an increasing intervention in the interests of policy objectives such as efficiency, reform, modernization, globalization, competition, and that snowballs uh, the accountability um, inertia, you might say. Um, and it also creates a new governance situation. More things can be said about that. Uh, I can tell you that the Danish um, Minister of Finance open, openly says that the competitive state is the new welfare state. And now you might ask, what is the difference between a welfare state and a competitive state? Well, as far as I've been able to understand is that in the welfare state, the system would pick you up again and again if you fall. But in a competitive state, you will be given a set of opportunities at the outset, and if you later on fall, then it's your own fault. So it's a, it's a, a different logic, certainly. Another uh, point that can be made about this new governance situation is that uh, competition and how uh, other countries are doing is becoming the, the ruler against which we are to be measured. Of course, uh, no need to even say PISA here, but, but um, that's one of the best uh, examples. Also, the, the, the choir of experts, international experts, have, uh, has arisen, people who who has a, a meaning or they do research on other uh, countries and maybe the European Union might even uh, sponsor that to create a, a space within the European Union of a space of education. So that's uh, just some, some um, additional remarks. Um, moving into this point, the international organizations like the OECD, Siri, UNESCO, EU, they create data, they create standards, they create benchmarks, uh, and they create new education spaces. And that also uh, plays into that new governance situation. I think these points are more or less uh, relevant to, to any educational system, any national educational system today. Um, in the Danish case, we have PISA, which causes a lot of debate. But I'll get uh, back to that. We have the TALIS, the national testing scheme, which is uh, some computer, uh, computerized uh, adaptive tests. Um, we have the annual quality reports. They are made at the municipal level. And then there's the question of league table publications, which 
the former government, the former conservative liberal government, was promoting, but the current uh, social democratic government has uh, done away with. But the, uh, the think tank, the liberal think tank, have taken out the results from the municipal quality reports, and then they can generate a league table. So there are really some, some strong currents at play here. If we then look at the 360-degree um, stakeholders, well, it's clear that, that accountability is such a broad concept consisting of multiple layers and numerous relevant perspectives dependent on the number of position of stakeholders in the equation. Um, one way of approaching this is to look at top-down and bottom-up stakeholders. Uh, who has an interest in this? Um, mainly the authorities, but maybe also there might be some, some unions, some organizations, some more bottom-up type of organization who would have an interest in, in this. And uh, historically, some of the, the stakeholders have, have emerged bottom-up. Uh, for instance, um, the progressive education movement who promoted uh, the introduction of testing in the interwar years can to some extent be des described as a bottom-up movement, whereas um, the government has always played a significant role, but I'll also get back to that. Um, if we then look at the stakeholders, these are the stakeholders that I've identified. There might be more even, but historically, of course, the crown has played a big role. The church, also a very big role. The government authorities understood as the executive, the local councils, the municipalities, the school management, the teachers, the parents, the children, and recently the international organizations. All of these stakeholders seem to play into the, the, um, the field of, of educational accountability. If you can add any more, please, uh, I'll be very interested. Um, if we then look at the, the crown and the church, there's another quote here saying that the bishops shall continually conduct close inspection with all schools in the diocese entrusted to them and be obliged to investigate the conditions of these schools, both through inspection visits as on any other occasion. They are also entitled to receive all relevant intelligence from the county school directorates and the parish school commissions. Moreover, they should oversee that the school system is promoted in accordance with my gracious guidelines and that encountered obstacles are cleared. So should they, on their inspections, examine the youth and file reports about how they have found the youth in each school taught to our Danish chancellery. So that was the 1814 Education Act, which was the year that the Danish public school system was established. So now we have the bicentennial this year. Uh, <laughs> yes. And there will be a big publication of a history of education, um, some, some five volumes of Danish history of education will be published this year. Well, that was just a side remark. Well, anyway, but the, the, the interesting part about this is that the, the crown, meaning the state, has a very, very uh, a strong interest in educational accountability and that they use the church to uh, perform that accountability but also that the church at this point in time itself had a very strong interest in educational accountability because it was very much about children um, being 
um, or understanding Christianity in the right way. So they had to be, be tested in their understanding of Christianity, and if not, they could not be uh, confirmated. How do you say that in English? Confirmed, yeah, at the age of 14, right? Or that was in Denmark at least. Yes. If we then uh, look at the state, now at this point in time, the church plays a smaller role, but still it's there. I'll get back to that. Um, there was a circular issued in 1915, and that's the circular about these ministerial tests, which I uh, showed at the very beginning. Since the ministry wants to form an estimate over the proficiency of the public school in written Danish, a common and simultaneous test in the subject mentioned is to be held at the listed public schools in the cities and in the countryside for this purpose. Um, a point to be made in this uh, context is that it was partly because um, um, the, um, the labor market would criticize school leavers for not having reached a high enough level of proficiency. So they, uh, the ministry then wanted to, to be sure that, well, actually the schools do uh, deliver what they're intended to deliver. There's another quote here. The ministerial tests were once introduced to inspect the children's attainment levels in the subjects at the time of leaving the public school. These tests are the authority's control of the effects of teaching as a regular statement of whether the school has reached the goal put up for it. Reader R.H. Peterson, and he is, he's not just anyone, he is really um, one of the key figures of what I call the Danish testing community in the interwar years. Um, he wasn't made a professor at the University of Copenhagen, but he was a reader and he had a platform for which he could import all sorts of testing from abroad, intelligence testing and that sort of thing. So, in this way of thinking, standardized tests were considered scientific, they were comparable, and they were empirical. So that was the, the argument of this testing community of people, who, by the way, some of these members had been to London to study under Cyril Burt, and, uh, and actually they were part of an international community of, of like-mindedness, you might say, People who said that, well, these tests, they are scientific, they are objective, they are comparable, they are empirical. In Denmark, of course, there was a big tension with the folk high school movement who were very much against any type of testing. That was Grundvik who would, uh, he, he, he believed in the living word, as it was said. So, um, so there was some tension there. Uh, and there was also some tension with the teachers, which I will also get back to. I'm aware that I've said that quite some times now, that I will get back to that. And that, of course, puts some strain on me, but still, I'm sure we'll get to that. Um, the labor market and the business world. Well, as I just briefly mentioned, there was this critique, at least since the interwar years in Denmark. And I presume it, it must be the case in England as well that there was an incessant critique uh, by both business and public sector departments proclaiming that children did not learn enough. This is evident in newspaper articles and wherever it's, it, and, and you can also see that teachers try to defend themselves against this type of criticism. So it, it's quite evident in the sources. 
Uh, and maybe <laughs> I think when I say that to, to a Danish audience, they, people are often quite surprised because they, they all tend to think that it's, it wasn't until recently that education really deteriorate, deteriorated and that in the interwar years, pupils at grade one would be able to, to, to solve polynomia and whatever. Um, apparently, they, they weren't able to do that. Um, there's another quote here from 1929 saying, it's quite natural that society and the funding authorities ask the question of the school. What are we getting for the money that's given to public education? Which values does the school give back to society and are the results of the school justifiable that the business world might be rightly served with them? And that's in 1929. I think it's, it's very modern really to, to find this type of argument. Um, Headmaster Arvin was also part of the Danish Progressive Education Movement, um, inspired by the New Education Fellowship with their headquarters in, in London and with their departments um, or branches all over the world. 1929 is also a key year because that's the year when the New Education Fellowship had an enormous conference at Elsinore Castle in Denmark, where all the big people from education would come to this uh, event. Um, and, and he was part of that uh, group of people. And also the Danish testing community, who supported uh, testing clearly. He was not a folk high school man. Um, there's another teacher here saying, from time to time the business world criticizes the school's teaching. Attacks which, which, which especially criticize arithmetic and orthography results. A critique which the school cannot persuasively ignore or leave unanswered, time and time again. With measurements as described here, that standardized attainment tests, the school will surely obtain a means that will demonstrate such attacks usually are baseless and built on very special cases. This is a time where the testing industry, the psychometric um, way of thinking, was still more or less uh, unchallenged. In the 50s and 60s, a lot of criticism um, were, was raised and uh, it uh, clearly, maybe it had something to do with the, with the sociological thinking becoming more and more prominent that people would think about how, how is this knowledge really based and under what circumstances have, has this knowledge been produced. But this is not the case at this time. And I think that if you look at it with contemporary eyes, it seems like the, the big pendulum is swinging back and forth, that uh, there was a big criticism, but now it's swinging back again, more towards these stances, which I think are quite modern um, to some extent. If we then look at the school authorities, who also have a very uh, clear interest in educational accountability because they want to know if the teachers are doing their jobs. Um, here is a, here's a, a, a letter from an inspection held in 1880 by the Dean, Frederick Anderson. He says that um, about the school, Harrelstead School, in a, in a few subjects, particularly book reading, Harrelstead has improved since last year's inspection. But it, meaning the school, has far too many defects and on so many important points that this condition can no longer be tolerated. 
The inspector held the prospect of an upcoming inspection and recommended in the presence of the school commission and the Paris Council, the teacher to work with the greatest possible diligence in the inadequate subjects, emphasizing the inevitable consequence continued standstill or deterioration would have for Rasmussen's, that's the teacher's, his position. So, and then he is giving the grade three. This dean, he invented his own grade system of teachers where grade one was the best, and then, uh, but there were even some were worse than this, and he had to, he had to add the grade three minus also, <laughs> but, um, but still. So, uh, the deans were closely associated with the school authorities at this point in time, and it's clear that they were really, you know, looking over the shoulders of the teachers. How are they doing? How are they performing? Also, school attendance was closely monitored and teachers were required to send statements of school attendance to the municipal council every other month. So, um, so the, it's just to say that the accountability goes all the way down the system, from the top to the bottom, bottom meaning the pupils, which, which I will also get back to. <laughs> well, in 1933, a new act of inspectorate uh, came out and it meant the end of the church, the church's role. A new office was instituted called the, the County School Inspector. That is the school directorate's educational advisor. The school directorate is the municipal, uh, the leading body, the managing body of the schools within that school district, uh, aligning with the municipal orders. It is his task to supervise and be consultive for the schools belonging under the jurisdiction of the directorate. So still, teachers were subject to authorities looking over their shoulders. It also says that if you look at the minutes from a meeting held in, uh, on October 2nd, 1935, that many teachers feared the county school inspector as an inspector, as a critic of teachers and a whip of new methods. Therefore, the position of county school inspector called for tactfulness and human understanding. He must balance between encouragement and caution. He should not be one-track minded and not give direction, but kind supervision. Um, I remember a presentation I just heard in Istanbul at the ESA about the Scottish inspection system. And I think that gave me some, there might be some resemblances here because as far as I know, the inspection system between England and Scotland is very, very different. So I think that's, uh, that's an uh, interesting statement uh, that the teacher or the inspector should be kind of team players who would develop the school in, 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 as a, in a community. An interesting uh, example um, is, in, is Greenland, the Greenlandic educational system, which of course was part of Denmark at this point in time, still is more or less, but the school director in Nuuk, in, in uh, the capital of Greenland, used test as a useful technology, but to counteract teacher assessment inflation and to strengthen his own position regarding both uh, disgruntled teachers and the Ministry for Greenland in Copenhagen. Um, this adds something quite interesting, I think, because it's from an organizational point of view, it's about retaining your 
your latitude within the organization that you can you can use tests to say to all these disgruntled teachers, well, the tests are objective, uh, you can't really complain about that. And uh, on the other hand, you can also use the test upwards in the system to say, well, look at what we performed, or maybe we need more funding or whatever. So it has some, some, some very um, um, ambiguous, um, what do you say, um, potentialities. Um, this is about organizational accountability. The school director wanted the teachers to be accountable, but they also ro uh, rose accountability demands on the school director. Uh, this had to do with the fact that they sent Greenlandic children, they used tests to select Greenlandic children and then sent them to Denmark for one year to learn Danish because if they wanted a, a secondary uh, education, they had to learn Danish. And uh, often the teachers were quite uh, displeased with this process. I'll, I'll show you that in a minute. <laughs> yes, I, I will actually show you that in a minute. Test-based accountability measures, they help preserve the school director's autonomy. So that's really the point about this. Um, I also want to, well, the, uh, the, the, the letter from the Greenlandic teachers will come shortly, I promise. But here, um, if we then move to the teachers, I would like to take you a bit back in time to 1849, where a teacher writes, the immediate superior of the school teacher, of whom he is completely dependent and obliged to obey, is the parish wicker and those of the parish peasants who are parish council members. Starting with the wicker, is he competent to handle this control? I could mention several damaging consequences of this control, for example, that it deteriorates the required respect for the teacher among the peasants, but it would lead too far to name all the damaging consequences inflicted by the unfortunate local control. Just believe that this control system should be organized in a different way. Um, again, so this is a reaction from a teacher who doesn't like to be looked over the shoulder, and also he feels that his position as a teacher is being looked down on by these peasants who, with the introduction of democracy in Denmark in that same year, 1849, meant that they would look down on, on him, these simple peasants. Who are they to, to judge the teacher, who was the best educated man, together with the vicar, of course, the best educated person in the local uh, areas. Um, the next quote, I'll just show you in a minute who said that, the vicars in relation to the educational system are usually a kind of their own because they, with very few exceptions, are so used to the traditional lane that they are unable to move to neither right nor left or as far as their influence goes will allow anyone to move. And that was Rundvi uh, who said that. In part, he was a member of parliament at that time. And, um, and he's really frustrated with this uh, system as well. This shows that already at that time there was uh, a big, um, a big uh, dissatisfaction with the church and that role that the church played. Um, but there were other currents within the teachers. This is another one of the leading uh, testing community people, Henning Meyer. He was Denmark's first educational psychologist and he had been to London to study under Cyril Burt. 
Um, and he said that, well, the school is unable to distinguish adequately between abilities and energy in the pupils. It needs a tool to support the immediate observation. And in this regard, a system of intelligence tests will undoubtedly be very valuable. So this uh, testing community really tried to promote the introduction of intelligence testing in Denmark, that uh, the sorting of children into remedial education. Um, but it was never rolled out on a comprehensive scale. Only the pupils or children that the teachers in the class would deem um, underachievers would be referred to a full educational psychology examination with intelligence tests and then they would quite often uh, be um, transferred to remedial education. There was no talk of inclusion at that time. They actually developed um, intervals of IQ scores uh, determining where you would go in the educational system. So if you had an IQ above 90, you could you could cope in the normal system. If it was between 70 and 90, you would go to the remedial education system. And if it was below 70, you would go to the um, uh, mental care institutions. So, so that was the, the intervals in which they operate. But what's really interesting about that is that in some municipalities, they work with uh, slightly different intervals. And what, what becomes apparent is that it had to do with the economy of the municipality. How many children could they afford to send to remedial education? And that way, <laughs> certainly the, the, the aura of objectivity, of, of scientific, the scientific status uh, granted to these tests would be undermined by something like economic uh, conditions of the municipality. But not much was said about that, of course. Well, the teachers, they really uh, had a struggle with the authorities. And in 1941, they achieved the freedom of method, which meant that, that they had the freedom to teach uh, the way that they wanted. And also the curriculum was very much up to the teachers. Um, there were just some very, very overall guidelines for each subject. And otherwise, the teachers were, you could, you could you could say the guidelines were like a frame and the teachers were allowed to just fill in that frame to their own professional assessment. So they were really professionals, whereas later on they became more uh, servants of the state. Um, what's also clear is that teachers often viewed testing as an external technology that would potentially undermine their professional expertise a threat they sought to counter by alternately teaching to the test and are complaining about them. But normally they would teach to the test. So it really shows that the implementation of test-based accountability measures would um, have a very, very strong disciplining effect. I'm sure that's not a surprise to any of you, but still it, it is evident in the historical uh, sources. Um, the fact that teachers were so uh, reluctant uh, also made life difficult for these, this testing community because they really tried to sell what they had to the teachers. They gave seminars trying to persuade their colleagues, uh, but it wasn't always easy. And it has something to do with the fact that many teachers uh, had a very uh, Christian orientation, uh, which meant that they would feel that only, only God could really judge 
someone and that they shouldn't be the judges of, of, of anyone, really. And some of them may, might have had a connection with the folk high school system, which, of course, also would be very counter to this way of uh, thinking. But eventually, uh, through good uh, work, a, a good uh, strategy, you might say, the testing community was able to sway many teachers uh, because they, um, they, they joined sides with the teacher union and, and, and did a lot of work for them in commission. So eventually, the Educational Psychology Study Commission, which was the organization in which these people were organized, would be known as the Teacher Union Committee. So they really aligned with the teachers. And in that way, they were able to, to uh, uh, embed a new profession, namely that profession of educational psychologist. And also, they used a lot of arguments referring to England, saying, well, what they are doing there is that well, they are miles ahead of us. And we try to, we, yeah, we need to do the same, basically. We try to use scientific methods in, in farming, but when it comes to children, we don't want to use scientific methods. What's that about? Well, they do that in England. We should copy that. So they really tried to do that. They succeeded to some extent, but as I said, never, never was there any uh, type of test like the 11 plus test that you had here in uh, England. Was, such a thing was never implemented in in Denmark, it was only the children who were found to be sub uh, or, or uh, yeah, uh, hard, what do you say? Yes, the time. <coughs> yeah. Yes. I'll move on. I'll just show you this uh, letter because it's, it's, really, uh, it's really interesting. That's the Greenlandic teachers, which I would get back to. It is with great regret that from the school directorate we received the information that only four pupils out of 20 recommended from a school the size of Fredrikshope have been accepted for a one-year school stay in Denmark, aiming at the lower secondary school. We do not find that in accordance with the wishes of the Danish people and its knowledge about Greenland that qualified pupils are held at a lower level of education than they are entitled to, according to their abilities, because the Danish state cannot afford to educate them. This takes place in a time during which education is recognized as a good investment for society. It's also tantamount to ignoring our pedagogical work and knowledge. It is a violation against these children's future prospects and a mockery of our work to send us a list with four names and leave it to us to break the news to the 16 homes which have all expressed their interest in the scheme that there was not enough money to educate their children. Who is going to argue the case of these children? Must everything happen in the press before something happens? We expect this case to be considered without delay or will have to seek a political indication of whether discrimination in Greenland in areas well within the economical frame of possibility is openly acknowledged. So that's a quite harsh letter. And it, it, it demonstrates that a lot of other uh, considerations enter the whole accountability thing because these, these pupils had been asked to be accountable for their learning, and they had done their best, shown in tests. But then there was uh, an issue about how many foster homes could they find in Denmark? How many, how many children did they really afford to send to Denmark? Uh, and also some of these foster homes would have some wishes uh, regarding whether it should be a girl or a boy they wanted. And that, so, so it really means that things got kind of messy, that again, like with the economic situation of the municipalities, other factors came to play a role in what, would, what, in what was held to be 
and, and objective testing system. And I'm sure that you can find many other examples of, of such things. If we then look at the parents, well, parents have uh, always, or at least until 1970, been uh, fined for not sending their pupils to school. Uh, so they were held accountable for delivering uh, well-fed uh, pupils w with enough sleep, as we, you mean, uh, you, you, you know, ready for uh, uh, receiving learning. Um, the school director in Copenhagen wrote in 1941, parents must have complete and proper knowledge about their child's attainment level, both to understand the child and in order to have a foundation for planning the child's future. It is the users who have the greatest interest in exams. And he was actually right in saying that because in 1937, the middle school had been introduced saying that there was an exam part and an exam free part. And all the parents, they wanted their child to go to the exam part because they wanted the exam. So he was actually very right about that. And also I think that this could also have been written uh, today, that quote. Um, parents played a role vis-a-vis test-based accountability on at least three levels because parents, they wanted to know about their child's proficiency levels in different subjects. Test results could also be used to persuade parents that measures taken in response to their child's abilities were appropriate. For instance, if the child was sorted into remedial school, they would say, yes, but you see the test results are like this, so you, you understand, we have to do this. Yes, okay, they couldn't argue that. Teachers and schools use test results in response to parents' uh, various complaints. Maybe that's another side of the coin, but still it's, it's, um, it's uh, because testing requires such a specialized knowledge that the layman cannot really uh, relate to them or, or criticize uh, the practices. Um, the point here is that, that parents might be pushed in the right direction or, or stifle uh, parental uh, complaints. If we then move to the children, well, as I already mentioned, that tests were used to hold children accountable for their abilities and proficiency levels. Until 1958, an annual examination uh, was carried out and it had significant importance for the individual pupils' promotion to the next grade and actually also for seating in the classroom. That's also very interesting from a sociological point of view. How did that work? Well, it was up to the teacher, but the teacher would often uh, sort children so that all the, the ones who knew the answers would be sitting in here and all the ones who didn't would sit over there. But also it had something to do with who had uh, a father who was famous in the, or, or an important man in the community. Then of course, even though they, they didn't do well on the test, they would still be sitting in the right place. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's just to say that school has this reproductive uh, uh, ability of social classes. Um, yes, I already mentioned that we had this intelligence testing scheme from the uh, late interwar years. Uh, what's interesting, when you look at all the child files of these remedial schools, is that thoroughness and a comprehensive view was transformed into pragmatism and an attraction to quantification. What is meant by that? Well, what I mean is that 
these, uh, these, these testing people, the educational psychologists, would say, we always have a comprehensive view of the child. We take everything into account. But when you look at the child files, it is very common that it's just the IQ that's listed. And that when the teachers saw that because they had to fill in another part of this form, well, that's the oh, okay, yes, we recommend the child to be transferred to remedial education. So it's just to say that when you have a quantitative um, technology like, like testing, it has a very, very strong impact on other evaluation forms, um, which will also be one of the conclusions. If we then look at the lessons learned, and I've put here in parentheses, potentially, because there's no way of saying if we can learn these lessons, or maybe you disagree with the lessons learned, but we can have a debate about that. I would say that the history of Danish primary education reflects an interesting evolution of accountability practices, clearly following the different types of government in the Danish state. It's clear that in the early period, you had the church and the state merging together, with, this, with the church playing the, the lead role, actually, then after uh, 1849, with the introduction of democracy, it's still the same merger, but then the state plays the lead role. After, uh, when the, in the welfare state, it's more or less just the state. The church is, is completely left out. And uh, after 1989 or 1990, you could say that it's the state and the market that's really the, uh, the leading engines in the uh, education accountability uh, area. It's also clear that diverging interests rooted in uh, different agendas among stakeholders are omnipresent in, in test-based accountability practices. Of course, this is maybe not a, uh, a surprise, but still it's important to note. Also, an international dimension seems to be present in the arguments for implementing test-based accountability practices also since the interwar years. Already, of course, maybe sparked by the First World War, that there was a, a huge competition uh, between states and um, education was held to be an, uh, an economic factor to be reckoned with. It's also interesting how these outside critiques from the business world or the uh, public sector system, uh, I just wrote from various angles concerning the educational system's proficiency standards, are also a recurring feature in understanding the introduction of test-based accountability. Because this is very much the case now, as I'm sure it is in England, because they say, well, in China they do this and they do that, and we have to copy that, or we have to be better at that, or the PISA results, you know, we have to, to copy Finland or Singapore or whatever. Also, um, high-stakes testing, um, which is also, of course, used with these accountability measures, is closely interwoven with societal needs for governing education access education management and, and social uh, selection. Uh, education access is a, certainly an, a very interesting uh, field. Um, it's also very clear that what you could call viral effects easily arise amongst different evaluation technologies, which bear significance for both the school and the learning environment. The relation amongst evaluation technologies seem to be influenced by their own existing hierarchy. What I mean by that is that teacher uh, evaluations of the individual pupil, where teachers would write about this pupil, uh, ranges lower than, than test-based results. And um, you could call it, there's a kind of a golden standard among different evaluation uh, technologies. 
And, and that golden standard is important to be aware of when dealing with these things because uh, yeah, testing uh, tends to, uh, to stifle other evaluation uh, technologies. Also, the introduction of test-based accountability is inevitably connected with notions of efficiency, and this has to do with the linkage between educational success and economic prosperity. So this very strong economic factor is a recurring feature. Societal ambitions that seek to mobilize all available human resources are critical in understanding the rise of, of these high-stakes testing schemes um, because they focus on the problem child which requires a diagnosis and a correct placement in society. This is uh, sometimes uh, referred to with the phrase of social engineering, that you can place anyone at the right place in society and mobilize the human resources. Again, this plays into the competitive state, where the state is seen as, as a corporation uh, in competition with, uh, with competing nations or corporations. What's also evident is that uh, test-based accountability may tend to be a conservative element in education, confirming existing knowledges and practice. Perhaps that's a bit surprising because the progressive education movement, they really wanted to do away with exams. Uh, they thought they were subjective and that's why they wanted to promote these uh, objective, objectively um, test uh, schemes. Um, and, uh, but really, they confirmed the existing practice because they had already uh, sorted children into remedial education before that. So now they just, they were able to present a new technology with a scientific uh, stamp to it, saying, well, now we can do that. We can continue to do what we, al we already did, but now with the scientific stamp. The pros, well, if you look at the pros for test-based accountability, well, it can work to create uh, knowledge about uh, pupil proficiency, but it is a certain type of knowledge. And it's very important to be aware of that. From a philosophy of science perspective, you could say it was a realist or positivist way of thinking that there is some kind of uh, entity, of ontological entity within each child which can, has an explaining uh, potentiality for the future course of this child. So as long as you're aware of that, it, it can uh, create some, some valuable knowledge. Also, the, one of the arguments has been that testing can provide a certain layer of transparency within an education system pertaining to the issues of education access, education management, and social, social selection. I know that in in China, the education um, or oh, the testing uh, scheme is, is very, very strong, um, but people uh, accept it as long as they accept that it's fair. Even though I know that if one of your ancestors was related to Mao, then you automatically moves into the right place, without, regardless of your test result. But, so there are some, you know, again, maybe that's an example of, of uh, different factors playing a role in these seemingly objective systems uh, put up. High-stakes testing uh, can be argued to be less unfair than evaluation types where teachers or societal elites play the role of arbitrary gatekeepers. At least standardized testing ensures that everyone 
it's treated the same and given the same possibilities of success. Well, that's the, that's the logic behind it anyway. Um, but uh, the, the other way of thinking is that children are different, so you're, in order to treat them the same, you have to treat them differently, actually. So, also, um, this has also been an, an argument in, in favor of, of such schemes that they will create standards which will spark high quality education. That was certainly the argument behind the No Child Left Behind Act of uh, George Bush. If we then look at the, the cons, um, as I have also shown, is that test-based accountability can be used to stifle different opinions and complaints because educational tests require highly specialized knowledge. So it's not for anyone to criticize this. And I think PISA is a good example that it has received a lot of criticism, but they more or less seem immune to this criticism. There's no interest in, in dialogue. Democracy. Well, high-stakes testing makes education practices less susceptible to democratic arguments, agendas, or perhaps even majorities. Uh, I think that's quite uh, thought-provoking. That's a point I took from the article that, that Jenny mentioned that I've written. It will, it will come out shortly about the relations between testing and democracy. Um, also, it's important to be aware that testing has a quite narrow scope of normality. Uh, so there is the risk of stifling idiosyncrasy into idiosyncrasies. Uh, and it's very, very important to, to, to reflect or to be aware of that no test is any better than its designer has been able to make it as regards uh, preconceived logic, the inherent values in the test, and possible anticipated answers. Because a test is... At the end of the day, it is an evaluation, and you can't have an evaluation without values, because it, it's, it's something about saying that some things are better than something else. So there are always values in here. There's an interesting example of a, uh, with an American um, uh, multiple choice test, where children were asked what type of plant needs the least amount of water. And there's a flower, and a cactus, and a cabbage head, and something else. Uh, anyway, the right answer was supposed to be the cactus, but a lot of children have answered the cabbage head. And then they were asked afterwards, why did you answer the cabbage head? And they say, well, it's been picked, so it doesn't need any water at all. <laughs> but the test designer was unable to see that, and so they were, they were graded with a wrong answer. It's also... Interesting, the uh, Sven Kainer's critique of the PISA, uh, it's just been published in Psychometrica, uh, in the journal Psychometrica. He was able to place Denmark on um, the third and the 42nd place using PISA's own, uh, own data. And I'm not a statistician, I can't really say much more about it then. The thing is that in order to make this work, every, the hardest question has to be the hardest question in every national context. And the easiest question has to be the easiest question in any national context. But the thing is that it isn't due to cultural differences. So that's why you get this uh, skating movement. Um, of course, the washback effects, uh, as I've also touched upon, the disciplining effects are something that one should also pay attention to. Well, this is the last one. 
Um, the general conclusion, testing requires a uniform practice for it to generate comparable results. Um, for the case with the Danish national testing scheme, the one that's just been introduced, is that there's no uh, uniform practice. It's very different from school to school, what kind of aids the children are allowed to use. Some use iPads, some are not allowed to use anything. Some sit in, in solitude and some don't. So, and still they take this results, well, that's the liberal think tank that does this, but still it, it, it's, it's very, very difficult to, to compare apples and pears. A combination of different evaluation technologies that's my argument, at least, is that some formative and some summative might be the safest way to go from a general democratic perspective. That uh, holding uh, children accountable for their abilities and proficiency skills should not be conducted based on one test alone. You need some other evaluation tools or, or uh, technologies to, to, to reach a fair, a fair uh, and balanced uh, assessment of a child. Of course, this, take re this takes resources. It's also very useful to, to reflect upon or, or to look at any educational accountability system, who is heard and who is able to participate in designing and implementing test-based accountability measures. It could also be useful to to, to uh, reflect upon whether these accountability measures are implemented bottom-up or bottom-up or top-down. <laughs> uh, because um, when they're implemented bottom-up, there tend to be more um, ownership among teachers and practitioners uh, for the system implemented. Whereas top-down, it's much more, you know, they can feel alienated. And this, of course, has something to do with this question also, who is heard and who is able to participate. I think that looking at Cicero, it might be prudent to ask this question, cui bono, who benefits from these measures? Thank you very much.